All right, we need to get started on Matthew 26. And we're going to start with verse 6. And Matthew Lee, why don't you read the story, verses 6 to 13. Okay. When Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much, and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured out this ointment on my body, she did it from my burial. Verily I said unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Okay, now this this puts a little bit of a damper on our discussion about <laughs> feeding the homeless, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> uh, what does this story have to do with salvation? Well, in the previous chapter, Matthew 25, he talks about, you know, I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. So the, the part of our duty as Christians is to remember the poor. So he says, the poor you have with you always, don't forget. Uh, it's a duty. Okay, so there's a tie-in to what we've talked about in the previous weeks. What about, you have the poor with you always, but you don't have me with you always, and this is to be done to me. I suppose that in doing good works, you can also forget your personal relationship with Jesus. You know, that's a that is a truism that is what everybody I think struggles with who does ministry uh, is we can get so caught up in ministry that we forget who we're ministering for and to mm-hmm. ultimately. But I think about it if if. We, <laughs> Just taking it face value for now. I mean, there's something undergoing, under, going under this uh, uh, undercurrent in the story that uh, other gospels refer to. But just taking it at face value, if we can't perceive the value of Jesus, we really can't perceive the value of the poor. Uh, the two go together, mm-hmm. and, and and Jesus is saying, you know, you always have the poor and, and keep ministering to them, but. You don't always. You won't always have me, and and if you forget me, you've you've lost your ministry to everybody else. But there's something else going on. Do you remember from other gospels what that is? Well, he's also alluding to his his death because this is prior to his crucifixion. Right, but there's something going on in the complaint of the disciples. There's something else going on. Well, I mean, there, isn't there greed in the heart? Um, Although the disciple, does your version have the disciple? <clears throat> when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, why this waste? Or is it one disciple? One so disciple. This is Judas. Mine says, but when the disciples. When the disciples. My version says that too. Hang on a minute. Let me, what verse is that? Verse 8. Verse 8? Yeah, correct. Uh, let me get up my Greek New Testament. My says disciples as well. Perhaps people uh, conclude that it was Judas complaining, even though it says disciples here, because he was the 
what, accountant? No, the treasurer. Treasurer. Oh, yeah, I feel like I remember that person's story. Yeah, most people believe it to be that. Because it's their money box. No, but particularly to this story. Yeah. Well, I mean, just because also that he, his love for um, money was, I think, established. I'm pretty sure he was of the opinion that Jesus would be an earthly king and didn't really see the long-term aspects of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. What verse is that again? Verse 8. It is the disciples. Hoi masetai. So are they all sitting together? It's, a, it's, it's plural in the Greek. Wow. Um, so, but other Gospels, I believe uh, possibly Luke or John or maybe Matt Mark, tell the story differently. They tell it, they add a, they add a parenthetical clause that says, that, well, actually, the story says that Judas said this. Oh, so Why this waste? And it should be given to the poor, etc. Uh, and it said that Ju and then it's a parenthetical statement. It isn't that Judas cared anything about the poor, but he was the treasurer and he took money out for himself yeah. out of that, and he was greedy. So, so that's underlying this. But just taking it at face value, I do think it has to do with value. Uh, use value twice there. It has to do with valuing, yes, the poor, but if, if we can't recognize who Jesus is, then our values are really skewed. But uh, let's go into this uh, in a from a different angle. What does this have to do with the plan of salvation? That's, that's really our focus. Uh, as we move through the Gospels, what does this have to do with the plan of salvation and with the atonement? Well, I think it could be, it's a matter of the heart. And so with the disciples, particularly Judas, saying that, um, I mean, from the outsider's perspective, it may seem like he really cares about the poor. But if you look from Mary, um, Mary's perspective and how she literally gave all that she had, Towards Jesus, and I think that that's what should come first in our in our, um, in our lives. Because once we have that, then everything else will flow from that. Then we'll have that love for the poor, and we'll have that love for. So it, it, you're saying salvation really begins in the heart. Uh, you know that's that's not um, popular in terms of uh, modern Christianity and where it's gone. It is, it is uh, more palatable to most people think salvation is beginning in heaven uh, or at the cross when Jesus dies, everybody's saved, and it's a legal transaction um, that doesn't affect our heart. What affects our heart is the result of salvation to many people, not salvation itself. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not agreeing with this. I'm just throwing this out here. Uh, well, the good tree bears good fruit, right? So a tree, because it's being watered, or a person, because they've been saved, they want to go out and help you know, the people that Christ has 
ask us to help, right? And yeah, but uh, of course, the the people that hold to a, that other construct would say that uh, you're putting works before you know you're salvation. You're practicing salvation by works because of something that's being done in you instead of something outside of you. And I'm not trying to promote this. I, I'm just uh, taking it and saying, is, do you think this is valid in terms of what we've learned in the last year or so uh, from reading the Gospels? It kind of seems like extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. For like um, the popular movement that you're talking about, it seems more like that's like extrinsic motivation. That because... Because the transactions take place, um, now I'm motivated to do these things. Is, is it possible if we look at if we look at the beginning of Matthew? Yeah. Um, it says, "You shall call his name Jesus." The angel says to Mary, "You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save, save his from, people from their sins." From their sins. Mm-hmm. That's salvation, isn't it? In a nutshell, he will save his people from their sins. Mm-hmm. That ha- that's very personal. That's not abstract. Mm-hmm. It's not legal. It's not an illegal construct. So it, it, sin isn't a legal issue. And, and that's what I think is as where we've fundamentally gone astray. We've seen sin as, as something God detests, and it's a legal thing, and so you've done something illegal, and so God uh, marks that against you in the ledgers of heaven. Uh, and so you have this huge account of sin that has to be taken care of, and Jesus died in your place to take care of that. He died a penal substitutionary death, uh, and and therefore you that ledger is taken care of, and and you're free. That's salvation. That's not what I'm reading in the Bible. What I'm reading in the Bible is that sin sin is something that happens to me internally. It happens to in my mind. It happens, uh, and, and it relates to how I treat other people. Uh, it's manifested in how I treat other people. Mm-hmm. And, and to deal with that, to save me from that, is to do something internal. It, it, there has to be something happen internal. And that's not something I can do for myself. So away with this idea that it means that I'm doing works. Uh, it is something Christ has to do in me. And he does it, I believe, predominantly through his love. I, I also see ministry not as you know just just works or the extrinsic motivation as it was called, because, say for example, uh, there's a story of the, the there were what, several lepers right and only one returned to Jesus to say thank you, but he was thankful. He he, he turned back and he says Jesus thank you for what you've done for me. He's happy and he wants to and many people they wanted to share and sometimes Jesus told them not to say anything. I wonder why, but you know they were thankful. And so, think about, let's just say Pastor Wittes wants to buy John a car, or a truck, right? Well, I'm sure John might be motivated to help Pastor Wittes anyways, if he needed help at his house, or if he has a garden or something, right? He might help him anyways, but how much more if he gave him a truck? It's the same idea. Wow, we, we recognize that Jesus has, you know, given us eternal life, and we are, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, right? And we are grateful, and we, we want to serve him. Because of what he's but but that that also works in the other construct, and that's how they view God saved us from our ledger, 
And therefore, in gratitude, we serve him. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean there's a, it's more of an obligatory, oh, thank you so much, now I'm obliged to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than, uh, you love me so much, that's transforming my life. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, a vast difference between those two. Uh, because transformation uh, is something that we can't mm-hmm. analyze and quantify and, and physically map out. Uh, it is something that's almost mystical that happens within us through the Holy Spirit. When you look um, at Jesus' um, time in ministry, and he always appreciated and valued um, genuineness and honesty. Yeah. So, versus like you have the Mary and Martha example, where Mary is crying at Jesus' feet after Lazarus died. And then uh, Martha is understanding and understands the, the concepts um, that have taken place, but it doesn't seem like it's been completely internalized at that point. Yeah. Paul's and, words, and, uh, actually, Paul's words help to answer our question. He says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Liveth in me, in the life that I know live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So uh, Paul, he's recognizing the Holy Spirit has transformed his life and he his actions, his life, uh, uh, emulate that. Yeah. Represent. I want to go back to the story. Jesus says, by pouring this perfume over my body, she's prepared me to be buried. I tell you the truth, that wherever in the whole world this good news is announced, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the highest commendation Jesus ever gives in the entire Bible. She, it will be told in memory of her. Uh, what does that tell us about salvation? And, and the good news... Uh, it, well, it tells us about motive because one can have good works, but look at her, her motive here. Um, yeah, but uh, what does it mean that wherever the good news is announced, what she has done will also be told in memory of her? What does that have to do with salvation? Why is that important? I mean, Jesus is the one who told us, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know? And yet, wherever this is, the good news is preached, she's going to be, this is going to be announced. This is, this is, she's, on, she's on the front page of the of the Christian times. Uh, what does that have to do with salvation? Well, her story is part of all the... I, well, actually, you, you would know if it, her story is in each of the four Gospels here, but it's in the Gospel itself, so... It's in almost... I think it's in all four, in some version or another. I think it is. I think maybe this action was the testimony of her faith, and it uh, just shows how Jesus worked through people to do good. Isn't part of the... Yeah, it is. And isn't part of the gospel. Take a person whom all of these men in the room, and I'm, I'm sorry to pick on you men, but all of these men in the room are scorning. I mean, this isn't the whole story. 
if you go to the other Gospels, the other piece of the story is that Simon, who's the host, uh, thinks if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't know what kind of woman she was. That she was touching him. And so she's being thoroughly scorned and shamed, and she's about to just creep away in total misery. And Jesus stops the whole thing, all the scorn. And in one gospel, she says, leave her alone. <laughs> and, and if you've ever been the butt of scorn, you know how beautiful those words must sound. <laughs> leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing, I think this gospel says. And then she'll be, this, this story about her will be told throughout the whole world. She will, be, she will be not popular, but highly extolled. And so Jesus takes her from this, this really shameful place where she's looked down on, and he lifts her up to the top. Now that fits with his words, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It is the role of the gospel to t- humble the proud and to exalt the humble. That is the work of the gospel. And it doesn't, it doesn't reverse roles. It equalizes. It's, it's to level, the gospel's role is to level the playing field. So, so it's not enough just to feed the homeless. It's important to identify with them and realize before the grace of God we would. And, and that, that they are no worse than we, and we are no better than they. That we, the, the playing field in the gospel is love. Um, so, so that, to me, is what I get out of this. Um, now, you notice in the next verse, I'm just going to, uh, next two, ver- three verses, uh, just quickly. Uh, Judas immediately goes out and sells Jesus. Obvious reconnection, huh? He didn't like being rebuked. And, and Ellen White suggests in, in Desire of Ages that this was the only time Jesus rebuked Judas in all the years that Judas had been with Jesus. This is the first time he rebuked him. Um, and it was, you know, you look at the rebuke and think, well, yes, he, he set him straight, but is it that strong a rebuke that somebody should go out and and sell you for 30 pieces of silver, uh, that seems a little over the top, quite a little. Okay, let's, let's read uh, verses 17 to 25. Christian, would you do that for us, please? On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied, 
The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. What does this have to do with the atonement? I'm going to press now towards the atonement because we're approaching Jesus' death, which is the atonement. Um, what does this have to do? How, how do we relate this to the atonement? Was it, let's, let's ask this question. Was it necessary for Judas to betray Jesus in order for him to atone for our sins? No. no. Because how, how so? Well, there were instances before where the people at the time tried to kill him anyways. And he escaped. But but Jesus had to die to atone for our sins, did he? Yes. So was it necessary for Judas to betray him? No. Uh, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed that it wouldn't have to happen this way, you know, the Father take this cup away from the future will, and he was hoping just to find another way out that it wouldn't have to go down this way. He knew he would still have to die, but he was just hoping it wouldn't be like this. Okay. So he, you think he could have died without Judas betraying him, is what you're saying. Now Jesus, Jesus in another gospel, I believe, states that, that it was necessary. That, that and maybe not necessary is the word, um, but this was to fulfill the prophecy. Or actually, the, the gospel writer says that. It was necessary to fulfill the prophecy. So, did God foreordain that Judas betray him? These are, these are important questions because it relates to how we view the atonement and, and the, all the whole process by which Jesus dies. It is an important question because in the Desire of Ages there's a chapter on Judas and Jesus gave him several chances to repent, you know, and to, to prove himself. Okay, if we, if we take the overriding verse, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all includes Judas, does it not? So God did not want Judas to betray him. Did he want someone to betray him? I believe that when it refers to this being the fulfillment of the prophecy, it was sort of in hindsight that Jesus being betrayed and killed was the fulfillment of the prophecy, but it wasn't necessary in the specific way that Judas be the one to do it at that moment. Okay, and this is going to bring us to a deeper question. Was it necessary, for, in order for Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice, was it necessary for the Jews to reject him and seek to crucify him? Well, that would have fulfilled prophecy, Right. Because the 490 years was given for them to repent. And then when Jesus entered his ministry, he says, the time was fulfilled. They repent right. and believe the gospel. So, right. But was it necessary for them to reject Jesus? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What the rest of you think? It 
Daniel 9, 24. Let, let, let me press this home. If it's necessary for them to reject Jesus, then they didn't do wrong in doing so because God wanted them to do it, right? Well, he never wanted his people to rebel against him, but they did. So. But if it's necessary, doesn't he want it? This kind of reminds me of how when Satan went against Jesus in heaven, we were reading the chapter before about how it had to manifest for the whole world to see. Okay, so when Satan... Satan rebelled. God had to allow it to work out to its full fruition. That's the way he works. He does not abort things uh, arbitrarily and prematurely. The tree has to grow fully, maturely, and produce its fruit so that everybody can taste it and say, you, that's awful. But this, the question I'm asking is a little different. You see, there is a school of thought within the Adventist church that if the Jews had, hadn't rejected Jesus, they would have had to take Jesus to the Temple Mount and offer him as the Lamb. Actually slay him as the Lamb. If they had accepted him, they would have had to slay him. And that raises all kinds of problems for me. Because then Jesus is a human sacrifice. And what's wrong with human sacrifice if that's the case? When, when God is, I mean, in Jeremiah, God says, this never, you know, you're offering your children as, as children, child sacrifices. This never even came into my mind. I never thought of it. That was not my idea. And it, and it suggests even more that if, if the Jews were supposed to reject Jesus, and crucify him, then we can condone their action. They did what they were supposed to do. They were just players in the drama. Well, I don't think it was, I don't think that was ever necessary for them to do that. I think that was just similar to what Shalina was saying, that they started down that path, and God let them continue down that path, and then it just happened that they would betray him. And the necessary part of it is that we see this is where a certain view of God leads. To the extent this this particular picture of God leads to murdering our Creator, murdering our God, so that we see the full end result, and that's all part of the atonement. Um, but I'm going to back up a little bit. And maybe I should have saved this for when we deal with it. But I'm going to say it now because even if I say it again, it's not going to hurt anything. <laughs> uh, and that is that when Jesus is in Gethsemane, when he, when he enters the garden, he says a very important statement. He says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And we, don't take, we take that as hyperbole. But it's not. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is an overstatement, the exaggeration. Mm -hmm. We we take that as hyperbole. We take it rhetorically, meaning that it's it's he's just saying that he's terribly sorrowful. But I think he's saying the truth. He's dying, 
And, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus falls to the ground with bloody sweat coming from his brow, which comes from a condition, uh, hematidrosis. I'm not, probably not saying that quite right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a severe depression and bleeding from the brain through the pores. Uh, I had a student with that condition once. And uh, it was in a doctrinal studies class where we were dealing with the atonement. And he asked to write his paper on it. And uh, he, he totally could identify with Jesus because he had actually had experienced that. A uh, whole physiological experience. Jesus falls dying to the ground. If an angel hadn't come to sustain him, he would have died the second death there. In Gethsemane without the Jews even rejecting him. The reason for the crucifixion is we've got to see the fruit of this particular picture of God and this particular way of, uh, of dealing with sin that the Jews had. We've got to see that. And, Jesus, and then when we see it, when we see the contrast between Jesus and his persecutors, the picture becomes so clear of who God is, who the Father is, that Jesus could say, I, if I am lifted up, will draw all to me. So, so it's necessary in the sense that you're saying it, Christian, that it had to work its way out so that we could see the full culmination. And, and the picture then would become very, very clear. But no, God never wanted the Jews to reject him. I mean, he chose them. Right. I think... The goal was to to allow I don't want to say salvation to work through them, but the goal is to through them that other nations would mm-hmm. come to him as well. Yeah, they were they were to be lights. I also believe that again, so going to the point that Jesus didn't hope to die being crucified. The Bible it says that uh, God desires obedience above sacrifice, so he would have. I suppose that the people did accept him as the Messiah rather than, you know, obviously killing him. <laughs> so yes. that seems like a bit too, like, straightforward of a statement. Yeah, and I think I think this view allows us to be very hard on the ones who rejected Jesus, not not because they're Jews, because they're us. I mean, you know, we it's it's a way of being hard on ourselves uh, because we we all tend to have. Uh, a way of rejecting Jesus. And it, it usually stems from the same set of uh, principles as they had adopted. So, so here's Judas about to betray him, and Jesus warns the disciples, but he does it so carefully that uh, it's suggested that, Judas, that the disciples never realized that Judas had been kind of caught red-handed here. Jesus doesn't try to expose his enemies. So was it done through like whispers and that, or like a private conversation almost? It was almost that you know they were kind of humming among themselves, uh, talking, and uh, they kind of heard Jesus, but they didn't understand what he was really doing. Mm-hmm. And and so when Judas left, Jesus said, "Go and do what you have to do." They didn't tie it together at all. They just assumed he was going out to prepare for the feast, since he was a treasure. It wasn't until Judas hanged himself that the 
truth became known. Okay, uh, John, would you read verses 26 to 30, please? And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here we have the ritual Jesus begins that really is atonement all the way through. How would you explain this ritual? What is the significance? What is the meaning? Well, in this scripture, we practice uh, communion here at church. So it's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Yes. But what is the meaning? Take and eat. This is my body. Do accept it. What does it mean to eat Jesus' body? Assimilate. We're going to come to this again when we come Mm -hmm. to John 6. Uh, How do we do that? Well, the word the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, so it could also represent his word and assimilating his word, okay. right? And how do we do that? By reading it and by uh, well, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So by memorizing scripture as well. Can but you know you can read you can read the Bible and not know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And you can memorize scripture and not know Jesus as well. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, I had read Desire of Ages through and did not believe that Ellen White believed in a loving God. How I could read Desire of Ages and not see a loving God is almost beyond comprehension, except that I had such dark glasses on I couldn't see. Dr. Sheldon, I'd like to know when was this? Uh, I was 15. Okay. 14, 15. James chapter 2. Uh, James is talking about people who say that they believe in God but don't live that way. And he makes the point that even the demons believe and tremble, but you know they don't show. Yeah, the Satan reads his Bible, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I should say his Bible. He reads the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so just because we read the Bible doesn't mean uh, we're safe, mm-hmm. because Satan believes the Bible. He reads the Bible, and it makes him scared. And sometimes that's as far as people get mm-hmm. in reading the Bible. I was just thinking, if you look at this just physiologically, what it means to eat. When you're eating something, I mean, you break it down, and then it goes, and it essentially becomes part of you because the nutrients become part of you as well. So it's also kind of back to what you were saying about matter, matter of the heart as well. So it's taking in, if, we, if we're talking about the word, taking in the word and letting it manifest and become a part of you. Letting it transform us, which means the word has to be a living word, a dynamic word, not just a printed word. And, and to me, the difference is that I see Jesus in it. I get almost a technicolor uh, video of his life, and it becomes alive and vibrant and real. So what I think is Jesus is trying to say This is about transformation, about taking in my life, 
really thinking about why I had to die, what the significance of my death is, what it answers, what it, what it solves, all of those things. And that's why, of all the places in Scripture where we should spend our, the most of our time, it's with Jesus' death. Not uh, just all the rest of Scripture, but that's the highlight, that's the culmination, uh, and that's where we need to spend a lot of our time. Uh, now, I've always mused about this, and I'm not sure I have a solution. Jesus take the, took the bread and blessed it and then broke it. And yet, the Bible clearly states that not of a bone of him shall be broken. Why did he break it? Well, the word of God isn't for some people, it's for everyone, right? So perhaps... So the breaking of it isn't necessarily parallel to anything that happens to Jesus' body. But in a sense, he it is broken. How is it broken? It's not bone, the bones aren't broken, the flesh isn't torn, well, in a way it is, but, it, but the, the structure is sound, but something got broken. Well, in, in Jesus' life, his heart was broken. Okay. Broken heart. That's internal breaking. And that's the breaking that enabled who he is and, and what he came to do and the meaning and significance of that in terms of revealing the Father to be disseminated to the whole world. It's that breaking of his heart that is clarifying about what his death means. And I'm, I know I'm, right now I'm sounding a little vague. I'm, I'm doing that on purpose. I don't want to give you the whole nine yards. I want to build it as we move through the Gospels. There's a quotation in Desire of Ages. I think it's in Calvary, chapter 71 or 72. And it mentions that his death about a dying of a broken heart. But I don't have the quote with me here, but I'm yeah. sure you can find it on your iPad. I, I'm very familiar with that quote. Okay. Uh, versus, uh, well, let's deal with the grape, the, the grape juice, the wine. Uh, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many so that their sins may be forgiven. This I need some explaining, you know, or you won't understand, grasp the ancient significance of the blood of the covenant. In Hebrew, when you make a covenant, you cut a covenant. Do you remember uh, the, little, the strange ceremony of the animals in Genesis 15? Were they in winter? Yes. They cut the animals in pieces. Uh, actually, Abraham cut the animals in pieces, and then the supernatural torch and, and sensor moved between the body parts of the animals. But this is part of God cutting the covenant with Abraham. Uh, Abraham had to cut the, the animals in pieces, and God moved through the body parts. What was that moving through the body parts? What did that mean? Well, it meant that he would say, I take on the terms of this covenant. If I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, you may do to me what you have done to this animals. And that's one of the ways in which, in the ancient Near East, especially tribal communities, I think, uh, actually formed a covenant. Um, they, they would walk among the body parts, 
or at least break uh, or cut uh, animal parts, animals apart. And they would say, I take on the terms of this covenant. If I do not keep, fulfill my covenant with you, uh, you may do to me as I've done to this animal. Did God fulfill his covenant? He always does. With Abraham? Mm-hmm. Yes. Did he fully? Yes, I would say. Yes. Because when he promised him that he would always have uh, people along the nations and descendants like the stars, it says in the New Testament that whoever keeps this word is a child of Abraham. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there are still believers in Christ, that is... That's a, that's a fulfillment of the covenant, but it is, a, is it the fulfillment he wanted? He wanted to save all Israel, right? Now, it's not God who broke the covenant. It's Israel who distrusted him and broke the covenant. And Abraham as well, initially. And what I see here is that, that Jesus' broken heart uh, and the blood, and you remember they pierced his side and the stream of blood of water came out. That's the blood of the covenant, I think. And, and the reason, I have reason for that. I, we, I did a handout here, I don't think you were here, uh, in which I went through the Bible and looked at the blood and, and the sacrificial blood and what it means. And, and basically, uh, it means the, it represents the truth about God. In the, in the death of Jesus. And that truth is manifested not by the pierced hands and feet and not by the crown of thorns. The gospel writers only mention the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands briefly. They do not tie it to the blood. When the gospel writers talk about the blood, they talk about the bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane and they talk about the spear. Uh, piercing his side, and so, and that's the uh, you might say the uh, frame of the whole experience of Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross. So, with that in mind, to me, the blood of the covenant coming out of his side and signifying a broken heart the breaking of his body is suggesting that God is willing to go to that length to keep his covenant and to get as many to accept it as possible. And of course, this is the new covenant. This is not the old covenant. This is not even the Abrahamic covenant. All of the Abrahamic covenant parallels the new covenant. This is the new covenant which, in which everyone will know the Lord, which is signified by the broken, the broken bread and, and the wine. So, so these are symbols that point us really away to me from a legal construct to a relationship construct where we come to know God and we come to trust Him. And... You know, interestingly, concerning a relationship construct here, Abraham and his covenant, he didn't necessarily trust God fully as he could have, uh, but God was still able to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And this, these uh, stories are written for us so that, for an example, that we don't have to make those 
same mistakes that these men of old did. We don't have to distrust God. If he had fully trusted God, he would not have had to do circumcision. That's, that's my take of the Abrahamic story. Uh, is that circumcision came about because he distrusted God. And so therefore God said, okay, you're going to have to cut a covenant and it's going to be a little more personal. So our, our, the bell has rung, so our time is up. Um, let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life and death of Jesus. I pray that as we uh, continue to work through the Gospels, that we may see your life in Jesus and your death for, what it all, for all that it is, that we may see the relationship of it to ourselves and to you, and that we may allow it by assimilation to become a part of our lives so that we live in a self-sacrificing way as Jesus did. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.